Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 76, St. Vitalian. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, how's it going? In July of 657, the Roman people elected an Italian named Vitalian as Pope. Hey, that rhymes. He was born in the town of Segni, not far outside of Rome, which is on the Via Latina. And immediately with his election, we're thrust back into the monothelite controversy. So the last two popes have stood up to Constantinople, and they have really suffered for it. We had St. Martin and St. Eugene. So what then is going to happen to St. Vitalian? Well, amazingly, very, very little. Vitalian, without compromising the truth, seems to have figured out how to get along with the East. Right after his election, he sent a letter to the emperor, Constance, who, if you remember, was the one who persecuted St. Martin I, and he proclaimed his faith and his election as the pope, and this was a kind of a standard thing that was done. And it seems like the emperor was just cool with it. So, what the heck? This was the guy who brutally treated St. Martin, like, really brutally, basically martyred him. What happened? How come he's okay with the Vitalian? Then, get this, on top of that, the emperor confirmed the primacy of the Roman pontiff in a letter saying, you're the number one, and then sent back to Rome the gift of a gold copy of the Book of the Gospels. What? (laughs) So, Vitalian wrote as well to the monothelite patriarch of Constantinople, Peter, telling him that he really has to get back in the good graces with the true faith, And apparently Peter didn't balk either, but he sought to resume communion with the West. So what the heck is going on? It seems like monothelitism in general and the Emperor Constance II in particular were becoming increasingly less popular. And so they knew that they were skating on thin ice. The common people really did not like the way he had treated St. Maximus the Confessor and St. Martin I and other Orthodox Christians. Remember, it was mocking and brutal and terrible what he did. So you combine that with the fact that Constance is getting his butt kicked by Arab armies and at times narrowly escaping battles with his life. And politically, Constance begins to realize that he can't really risk alienating the West anymore. He doesn't have the political capital to really impose his vision of the faith. And this unpopularity prompted something incredibly rare for a Byzantine emperor, and that's a trip to Rome. In 662, Constance decided to visit the ancient capital of his empire, If you remember, they're still calling themselves Roman emperors, even though now we're really Byzantine emperors. And he took what was, in fact, a huge political junket. He arrives in the middle of 663, and he spends 12 days in Rome, celebrating, being celebrated, visiting churches, walking on foot to St. Peter's to pray, visiting all the sites, and apparently not fighting with the Pope at all. And after 12 days, he left and went south to Sicily but apparently not without taking some souvenirs. Apparently he had his soldiers strip the monuments and churches of Rome of all their bronze, including the necessary fasteners and the bolts themselves that held things together. And this kind of led to the further ruination of the ancient monuments of Rome. It was already decaying, but now with all the necessary fasteners taken out, it was going to fall down even more. And so this was all stripped and was brought back to Constantinople to be melted down and used there. So... There's a kind of truce between Rome and the East, but not everything was really settled. 
And Constance definitely didn't look on Rome with favor or affection. They just got along. And in fact, he still tried to undermine the Pope in Italy whenever he got the chance. So for years, one way that Byzantine emperors could do this to get back at Rome when they didn't like them was to undermine them with the diocese that fell under Rome's jurisdiction. So you promote that diocese, one of those dioceses, and say, yeah, yeah, you're great, you're great. And then Rome gets upset because they're, they're messing with them in their backyard. And so the one they used the most was Ravenna. Ravenna just happened to be the most monothelite-friendly diocese in the West as well. And that was also the seat of the Byzantine government in Italy. And so there's all sorts of reasons why Ravenna can be promoted and you know stick it to the Pope uh, in his own backyard. And so the Bishop of Ravenna, a guy named Marus, decided that he had had enough of Rome back when Pope Martin held a synod in the Lateran in 649, and he refused to come. And then again in 666, encouraged by Constance II, Maurus refused to come to Rome again when summoned by the Pope. And so the Pope said, you know, this isn't going to fly. He excommunicated him. And then Maurus said, this isn't going to fly. And he excommunicated the Pope. And they both wrote to Constance, who was in Sicily at the time. Now, Constance, of course, took Maurus's side and sent him a document declaring that Ravenna no longer fell under the jurisdiction of Rome. And this so made Maurus's day that he had a mosaic made of this moment and put it in the Basilica of St. Apollinaris of class in Classe, just outside of the town of Ravenna. You can still go and see it today. Now, just to wrap up uh, a loose end, in 668, rumors were flying that Constance II, who was hanging out in Sicily still, was thinking about moving the capital of the Byzantine Empire to Syracuse in Sicily. Now, this would make a lot of strategic and political sense. It's in the middle of everything. It would give him the power base from which to try and fight back against Arab gains in North Africa. It would give him a central location from which he could really coordinate the armies of the empire. But unfortunately for Constance, it wasn't meant to be because on September 15th of 668, Constance II went into a bath in Syracuse with one attendant. And once he had gotten all soapy and he was kind of washing his face and the soap suds were in his eyes and so he had his eyes closed, his attendant took a heavy metal bucket that had been used to pour the bath water and he smashed it on Constance's head. And then he ran out and left the emperor for dead. And so when he was finally discovered, he had died in the bath. And our last major monothelite emperor dies. And lucky for the true faith, a more orthodox emperor, Constantine IV, takes the throne. And we don't know too much more about St. Vitalian. With a lot of these early middle-aged popes, we know a little bit more because of how they interacted with the church in England, because we have the fantastic history of the Venerable Bede, which is so detailed and so tremendous, and it really gives us a sense of how the church in England interacted with the popes. And so we have, throughout all of these early middle-aged popes, we have little details in the history about what they were doing in England. And I've been skimming these accounts a little bit. I've been, you know, putting in things here and there. But there's a lot of stuff that, you know, maybe is it's unique and interesting, but it doesn't bear fully on the picture. But I do want to give uh, one tidbit from St. Vitalian's reign. And in St. Vitalian's reign as Pope, we have the historic and important Synod of Whitby in 664. So I figure we could touch on that really quickly. England had a mix of Christian practices. There was Celtic Christianity, which dated to some of the first evangelized people in England. And then there was a more Roman Christianity, more in line with the Church of the West, and that dates more to the mission of St. Augustine of Canterbury. And at Whitby, the church in England decided to renew its place as a Roman church, not necessarily as a Celtic church, and decided it was going to keep Roman practices, Roman traditions, 
and the most important of these was the dating of Easter. The Celtics had kept the dating of Easter as a different time, and the, Rome, uh, the more Roman side kept it, obviously, in the Roman way, and so they decided they were going to keep the date of Easter in the Roman way. So St. Vitalian received the news of this synod, and then he ordained and sent a new Archbishop of Canterbury out to kind of fill the vacancy there and to help implement the new synod. St. Vitalian died in 672, and he was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. He was succeeded by a man named Adeodatus, which is either the first or the second, depending on how you understand these things. But we'll talk all about him next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com, or you can find us on iTunes. Thank you. God bless you. Take care.